Well, folks, we are finishing 1 Samuel today, which means next week we're going to start Galatians. If you cared to read ahead, it's only a six-chapter book. You probably could read it all in one sitting, maybe in 30 minutes. I encourage you to read ahead. Just think through it. See what questions come into your mind, what thoughts you have. And then next week, Brother Chuck will get us started in the book. It's wonderful, stock full of good things, as has been First Samuel. Now, the ending is not so good. It's kind of sad. David was confronted by enemies. David, soon to be king of Israel, <clears throat> but now on the run, has been on the run for, who knows, maybe 20 years, uh, at the hands of crazed King Saul. David has been confronted by an adversary, the Amalekites, and he seeks God's guidance, and God confirms, go after them, I'll grant you success, and that's what happened. Saul was also confronted by an adversary, the Philistines, but he's not able to inquire of God because he cut himself off from God's counsel through sin, unrepented of. In fact, he had no choice but to seek the counsel of a practitioner of the occult arts, a witch at a place in Israel called Endor. This was not good. So he confronts uh, his foes, the Philistines, the outcome, as we will see here, is much, much different than that which David experienced. This is quite tragic. So let's take a look. First Samuel 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. <clears throat> the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan. You know, that's Jonathan, uh, David's close friend. Uh, they killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded, probably mortally wounded by the archers. My guess is they got a specific assignment to try to take out the king. This is good military strategy. You try to identify the upper leadership, the commander of the troops. If the commander goes down, it has a terrible effect on the rest of the troops. I don't mean to toot my own horn here, but at the risk of doing so, let me mention something to you. I was a chaplain in the Army, <clears throat> and historically, chaplains in the military are almost never taken captive by the enemy. Did you know that? They're killed because uh, the effect of taking out a so-called representative of God has great value to the enemy. It demoralizes the troops. If this is the guy who's supposed to have closest access to God, that's not true, of course, but that's the perception a lot of soldiers have. If he's gone, then what are my chances? So that, that kind of is... And my guess is the archers were uh, specifically tasked with the um, responsibility of trying to take out Saul, the commander of the army. Uh, this happens even in warfare today. In fact, when you're in the field, <clears throat> uh, uh, on our uh, uniform chaplains, we wear a cross. It's a silver cross. But when you're in the field, it's a subdued cross. It's, it's black. And any officer rank um, is always subdued rank. Captains, you know, those those railroad tracks, captains, always subdued rank or anybody because uh, snipers can target them. They want to take out the leadership. In fact, in the field, you don't salute uh, superior officers. You never do that. I remember one time I was in the field. We were in field duty, and our commander was a 06. That's a full bird colonel, eagles, what they got right there. <clears throat> and uh, 
a younger soldier saw him coming and, and he saluted him. You know, that's a sign of respect. And man, did he get reamed out by the colonel. He said, you just gave me away to the sniper. That, who made, This was training, but that's what happens. Anyway, you want to take out the leader. So the archers succeeded. They hit Saul, probably with a mortal wound there. And so Saul says to his armor bearer, verse 4, draw your sword and pierce me through with it. Otherwise, these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. That's what he said. <clears throat> you know, he's, he's not paranoid. He's probably, I mean, he's right. The Philistines were notorious for doing crazy things to folks' enemy they captured. In fact, remember what they did with Samson? They gouged out his eyes and then had fun watching him stumble around. Saul anticipates that possibility. He said, I don't want to go through that. So he asked his armor bearer to finish the deal. He's probably dying already. He wants his armor bearer to accelerate the process. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. What does that mean? I think he feared God. This is the Lord's anointed, Saul. Even though he was a flawed human being, he still the king of Israel. So I think the armor bearer doesn't want to mess around here, and he doesn't want to kill him. So Saul took his sword, and he fell on it. <clears throat> so he, uh, he, he took his own life is what he did. And here's what happened in verse 5. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So what you have in one chapter, two suicides. We have in the Bible a record of seven suicides, to my knowledge, no more. Not that there weren't more, but only seven are recorded. This is not to say that many more didn't think about dying, but we have a record of only seven carrying it out. Let me tell you about some others who actually thought about dying. You've heard about Elijah. So in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, it says, Elijah requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life. That's Elijah. Jonah, you know about Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 8, uh, Jonah begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Then there's Job, of course, Job chapter 3, verse 11, Job says, why did I not die at birth, come forth from the womb and expire? And the great apostle Paul himself, even, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. My point is to share with you the issue is not thinking about dying. The issue is following through on it. The first is permissible. The second is not. There sometimes are such hardships and pains in life, such depression, that the thought of ending the pain, by the way, most people who commit suicide don't want to end their life. They want to end the pain. But someone has said this is a rather permanent solution to an otherwise temporary problem. So uh, at a point of pain, these who I've shared with you, and my guess is a number in this room, if we were to be honest, have thought about ending the pain by ending life. I don't think that's a horrific thing. That's how you feel. That's the language of emotion. That's the language of a hurt and wounded heart. I don't think God is, finds that repulsive or anything like that. That's the design with which he's made us. We're human. We have feelings and emotions and life circumstances sometimes 
um, invite the language not of reason so much, but the language of emotion. So that happens. So to think that way is not the problem. To act on it is the problem, and here's why. If Jesus is the redeemer, that means we are the redeemed. The word redeemed or redemption means to be bought, purchased. means we've been bought, purchased. What's the price? Life of another. Life for life, his for ours. Quite an expensive purchase price. But having been redeemed, it now means we don't own ourselves. Now, this flies in the face of the philosophy of the day, which essentially says you have a right to your own body. But that's just based on a worldview that is not biblical. Your body has been purchased by the crucified body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the redeemer. That means you are not your own. You now are someone else's property. This is quite helpful at the point of thinking about suicide because for the Christian, it's really not suicide if you took your life. It's more like homicide because you're extinguishing the life of someone else's. (laughs) You don't have a right to your own life. You've been purchased with a prize. So suicide is actually more like 180-degree homicide. I wish you would think about that because at the point of catastrophe, You don't think straight, neither do I. Emotions take over, and you need something then to help you. Maybe this helps. Uh, I made some decisions a long time ago, commitments. A commitment is something you make before the fact, uh, and that's helpful. So I made a few commitments. One is I will never take my life. I'll tell you why I made this commitment. It's because I made two attempts on it before I knew the Lord. I failed miserably both times. But I made two attempts, Uh, one while I was in the military. And uh, uh, usually the precursor to suicide is depression. So if you struggle with depression, um, you're vulnerable. You're more susceptible to – it's not a guarantee that you commit suicide, but um, nobody commits suicide who isn't depressed to some extent before. So as a person who has struggled with depression and still does – I'm a setup for some of these thoughts. So I made this commitment, I'll never take my life. This is very helpful to me because then when things take over and I can't think straight, I mean, I know a few Bible verses. I know who Jesus is. I have hope in Christ. And yet sometimes you can't, you, you can't lay hold of that at certain extremities of human need. That's the way it is. So what do I have then? I simply have this commitment. I will not take my life. So at that point, I could say, oh, God, I wish it was over. Oh, God, I wish you would take me home. And I have said those things. I don't think he says, you know, stop doing that. I don't think he says that. Uh, But that's where it stops for me. I don't follow through on it. Why? Because I made a commitment not to. Here's my second commitment. First is I will never take my life. Here's the second. I will never divorce my wife. I'm not sure if she's made the same commitment. (laughs) Uh, But I have. And I'll tell you why. Uh, I discovered a long time ago that the purpose of marriage is not to be happily married. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. We ought to pursue it. Uh, uh, the purpose of marriage is, is permanence in marriage, is to stay married. So it's okay to be miserably married. <laughs> I mean, nothing in the Bible that says you shouldn't be. Because a lot of us, we think, you know, when we get, we're unhappy in a marriage, that's grounds for divorce. Or how about this? Irreconcilable differences. 
Now, look, if you're one of the decreasing numbers of people who is still married to someone of the opposite gender, that's passing out of fashion, apparently. But if you're one of those people who's married to someone of the opposite gender, you will have irreconcilable differences. If you're the male counterpart of this partnership and your partner is the female counterpart, maleness and femaleness are irreconcilable. Are you kidding me? She doesn't know what makes you tick and you have no idea what planet she comes from. That's not a grounds for divorce. That's a grounds for go fishing or something. Get some space so you don't kill each other. <clears throat> so... So I made these two commitments. I used to run, believe it or not. I used to run, in fact, um, in the military. And, and, and here's what you do. You determine before you start out how long you're going to run on that occasion. So, um, so you say, I will, I'm going to run three miles today. Let's say you say that. And you just do it. You get to a mile and you're dying. Well, too bad. You made a commitment and you push on. Now, if you say, I'm not sure how far I'm going to run, let me just get out there and get going, then I'll see. You're done in a quarter of a mile. So that's how life is. So you want to make certain commitments in advance that fly in the face of how you feel. Because even Christians could feel like dying. Might as well admit it. It's just true, folks. Once in a while, that's just the way it is. Feeling that way is not the issue. Acting on it is, is the issue. So... We're not allowed to do it. Now, by the way, um, the desire, though the desire for ending one's life for suicide might be there, do you know it never comes from God? God is not the one telling you to kill yourself. And that's enough to keep me from killing myself. I'll tell you what. It makes me angry that Satan wants me dead. And I'm just going to win. I just don't want to give him a cause to rejoice. I'm just not going to do it. So suddenly I realized it had nothing to do with me. It has to do with Satan versus Savior. Am I going to give God the glory by hanging in there? Or am I going to give Satan the victory and let him rejoice? I'm not going to do it. It's not God whispering to me, take your life. It's Satan doing that. So that has really, really helped me. As a prior military guy, it's just a doggone war. And I plan on winning this one through spiritual weaponry. Not personal strength, spiritual weapon. Anyway, uh, Saul took his life. The armor bearer took his life. Uh, Not a good idea. So thus Saul died with his three sons, verse 6, his armor bearer and all his men on that day together. Folks, sin is never a private thing. We like to think that. You don't hear this deal. Hey, it's none of your business what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their bedroom. There's no sin, there's no bounds to it. It it has a contagious effect on families, on society, on the world. That's why God hates it. Not the sinner. He hates sin because he knows of the impact on. So Saul's sin here, look what it did to his family. His sons die in the field, his armor bearer. The army is defeated, the whole country. Good night. And by the way, what has happened, as recorded in verse 6, is a fulfillment of a prophecy given by Samuel chronologically the day before it actually was fulfilled. So you remember this in 1 Samuel 28. 
Saul cuts himself off from God. He's panicking. The Philistines are at his door. He needs guidance. Can't get it from God. Yes, he could if he repented, but he didn't. He surreptitiously locates the witch, a medium, and a spiritist at a place called Endor. It's in the Jezreel Valley area. He goes to her and he asks her to conjure up the spirit of Samuel because Samuel was a previous great prophet in Israel, now deceased. Samuel, remember I told you that was such a weird passage of scripture. Samuel somehow speaks, but I don't think it was by demonic uh, force. I think it was God somehow arranging for Samuel to be heard by Saul Words of condemnation, final words of condemnation, of which we read, 1 Samuel 28, verse 19. Moreover, this is Samuel, who previously died, somehow communicating these words to Saul. Moreover, the Lord will also give over Israel, along with you, into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. That's not a good thing. That doesn't mean you have eternity. It means you're dead. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. See how all that was prophesied? Now, chronologically, folks, even though it was three chapters ago or four, it just happened yesterday, (laughs) in that day. The prophecy took place yesterday, the fulfillment today. And this this is how Saul died. Terrible. This is how he finished the course. Can I tell you something? It's one thing to get off to a good start in the Christian life, even have a good middle. But finishing is important. You know what I'm seeing a lot? A lot of my peers, better people than me, are not finishing well. Terrible. I mean, every day you read something in the news about a well-known Christian leader has simply not finished well. Committed sexual sin or who knows what. One of my biggest fears is this. I got off to a good start in a Christian life. I've done pretty well. I don't have any secrets or anything like that. But I want to finish well. So I try to learn from these others because because I am not better than them. I am them. I try to learn what maybe they, they didn't see. One of the things I don't think they saw was you're not that important. <laughs> you don't have to show up for everything. You don't have to say yes to every invitation you you can provide for your legitimate needs for sleep for recreation nobody's that important but i'll tell you what happens in my opinion when a minister overestimates his value and has no life apart from the ministry he gets angry because he has no life apart from the ministry he actually gets angry at the people he's ministering to He's angry because everyone wants something from him. And inside he's saying, what about me? I have valid needs. That's right. But that guy doesn't see him as valid needs, which can be met in a valid way. He is addicted to to the ministry. That's where he gets all his strokes. That's the way it is in ministry. I know this. I minister to ministers. And, uh, And you can't stop. You can't say no. Every call, every email, every hospital visit, every funeral, every wedding, every meeting, every this, every that. You get real angry because you're real tired. <clears throat> so then what you say in your anger, you say, I deserve a break today. I deserve a measure of pleasure. 
And that's the precursor to an affair. It's not necessarily, not, not necessarily that, that you seek it, but the opportunity comes. Because Satan studies ministers, and he knows this formula. I've shared it with you. It's a formula for disaster. Desire plus opportunity equals disaster. Satan can see when the desire is being conjured up in the life of men. He just sees this frenetic pace. He just sees it's called the ubiquitous pastor. It's got to be at everything. Can't say no to anything. He's the, you know, he, he's the guy. He's got nothing apart from that. It's, it's kind of a form of idolatry. And the idol ceases to meet your needs. Satan studies it. He said, oh, the desire for rest, for pleasure is there. I'll just, I'll just give this guy an opportunity. Then when you get the two together, you get disaster. So I'll tell you what I do, because I'm not better than any of my peers who have fallen. By no means, I'm worse. <clears throat> I watch the desire phase and the opportunity phase. So for the desire phase, I don't want to get that tired. I'm not going to do it. I'd rather get fired. <clears throat> I'm not going to get that tired. I'm not going to burn out. I want to finish the course well. I want to run the race with endurance. I want the Lord to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't want to be disqualified, so I don't want to overestimate my worth and value. Others can do certain things. You don't have to do everything. I don't want to be out every night. When I went to seminary, this was the deal. You're supposed to be out. You're you're a servant of the king. You just, you just, you just, nope, I'm not going to be out every night. I'm going to choose wisely the things I do, have to do, and other things, discretionary things. I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm just going to say no to. They don't want to write books. I don't want to speak here, there, and everywhere and do all this kind of stuff. And No, I want to be able, I want to be able to stay rested. Why? Because then my desire for illicit rest and pleasure is diminished. They don't have this burning desire because I know later today I'm going to watch reruns of American Idol. I'm really looking forward to it. It's kind of a cool deal. In fact, I may even do it while eating a pizza. Well, I got something to look forward to. That's kind of a good deal. Now, I'm not going to lunch with any of you people. Well, unless you pay. Let's be real. No, I really mean that. Uh, 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 my wife and I try not to do much after church on Sunday. I'm alive and well. I have plenty of energy. I had a good night's sleep. I'm 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 rested and 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 all the rest. And and I, and I'm gonna keep. I want to keep that reserve in my tank because if I don't, I become more susceptible to seeking pleasure in an illegitimate way. Why not recognize legitimate God-given needs and meet them legitimately? A pizza and American Idol may not be the most uh, you know, the wisest choice in the world, but it's not a sinful choice. Well, maybe the size of the pizza I'm going to get. Yeah, I, I got you there. But anyway, so I, 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 I don't want to be like Saul or uh, so many others in our day. I want to finish the course. Well, so do you, don't you? So here's, a, here's what you have to do, you and I. Don't take it for granted. Start planning now. Protect yourself so that you finish well. The second part of that equation, I talked about desire, is opportunity. I'm real careful about what I watch on TV, what I have on my computer, who I'm alone with, who I touch, how I look at certain people and all the rest, how I allow them to speak to me, treat me, opposite sex people I'm talking about. So I do things now uh, to, to... uh, curtail opportunities 
that may otherwise lead to my disqualification because better people than me have been disqualified from the ministry. Now, you should do that too. Plan to finish well. Don't you want the Lord's words when you see him? First words to say, you don't have to say, hey, for most of the time you did pretty good, but you really, really dragged my name through the mud towards the end. You really hurt your family. You really caused people in your church to be broken, to question their own faith. I love you. I forgive you. But boy, you did not finish well. I don't want that. I want him to say, good job, good and faithful servant, don't you? Well, then work at it. We have to work at it right now. So finish well. Saul didn't finish well. Okay. Now, verse 7, when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, Jezreel Valley, that is, with those who were beyond the Jordan, that means they were to the east of the Jordan, they saw that the men of Israel had fled and Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned the cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. What a good strategy by the Philistines. They essentially divided Israel in the middle from west to east, which means Israel could be defeated. That's kind of what's going on over here. Verse 8, it came about, On the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they weren't coming to give him a fit burial. They were coming to strip him of whatever they could. They found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Now, I'll tell you this. Some say they have found a contradiction in the Bible because here we've read about Saul falling on his sword, essentially accelerating his own death, taking his own life. But if you were to read on, we won't, but if you were to read on into Second Samuel chapter 1, um, we find out that an Amalekite um, comes to David at Ziklag, and David says, where are you from? What's going on? He said, oh, man, I've been out there, you know, in the war, and David said, what's going on? He was inquiring, how did it go? Really, I mean, the Israelites, they, we nailed them. They, they got, they're dead, and not only that, the king and his sons are dead. David's grieving here. Saul was a flawed human being, but David still saw him to be the Lord's anointed. David could have taken Saul's life, but didn't do it. Now this guy's bragging about it. He said, I was on the mountain with Saul, and I killed him. Well, it didn't work out too good for him. Um, David killed him. But, but here's the apparent contradiction. In 1 Samuel 31, it looks like Saul took his own life. 2 Samuel 1 says, no, the Amalekite took his life. Which is it? Well, I'll tell you which it is. What do you say, Bear? Yeah, the first one. Uh, Saul took his own life, and in the second account, the Amalekite is lying. Now, why is he lying? Because he took some of Saul's stuff, and he's bringing it to David, who he knows Saul pursued. He's seeing reward in this stuff. Hey, man, I got some stuff. How much money are you going to give? I killed the guy who's trying to kill you. But he didn't understand the heart of David. Anyway, we do not have... A contradiction. We have an apparent discrepancy, which is resolved by some common sense. I just want to know you this because you you don't know this because some critics of the Bible may throw this at you. Here's no contradiction. It's no contradiction. The second account was presented by a guy who was mercenary and in it for the money, and so he said, "I took his life." He didn't take his life at all. Saul took his own life. Okay, that's the whole thing. So anyway, that's what happens. Now, verse. Uh, let's see. I did verse 8. Let's see here. Let's, let's skip. Okay, verse 9. There you go. Uh, so 
They cut off his head. This is what the next day when the Philistines got to Saul's body, they cut off his head. They stripped off his weapons. They sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news. Ah, the gospel. That's the Philistine gospel. You know what the Philistine gospel or good news was? Our God is greater than yours. That's what it was. They took his stuff, Saul's stuff, and they, uh, they carried the good news to the house of their idols. They, they, they had their own gods. One was Dagon, and his female partner was a gal named Ashtorot. They took him. They essentially, here's the good news that they spread. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not as great as our gods. Saul had no chance <laughs> to influence them with the real good news because of his sin. And do you know that could be us? Do you ever think about this? Because of our behavior, or should I say our misbehavior, we can so detract from the real good news of God become flesh to suffer and die for human sin. We can so invalidate the message that the good news is diluted, and the other good news is there is no God. You know what our job is as Christians? Our job is to make it easier for people to believe in a living God who's merciful and gracious and suffered and died for our sin. That's our purpose, to make it easier for people to believe in that. But when we, just, we don't, because of our sin, they choose another good news. Here's the good news. I could do whatever I want because there is no God. <laughs> that person, that person who goes to church, claims to know this God, but that person's my neighbor. I know how that person lives. That person's my coworker. I know what that person's. Can you see how we can invalidate the real good news? Anyway, this is what they do. The Philistines, they send the king's weapons throughout the land and so on. In verse 10, they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtarot. She was the goddess of fertility. You worship her and you become fertile. That's, that's, that's the deal. That's the exchange. And they fastened his body to the wall of Beit Shan. Now I want to ask here, has anyone been to this place called Beit Shan? Raise your hand. There's Barry Baby over there. The Bergerons have been there. The Collins is, Lord willing, will be there. Katya, you went there. Did you bring Tony? I don't think so. It was a good trip. Oh, that's right. Little Tony. That's right. But anyway, Beit Shan is a real place. You can go there. That's where this event took place. It's a, a tell. They call it a tell, tell bait shan. A tell is, not a, is a man-made hill. Levels of civilization build on it, one on top of the other. Bait shan is in that tell, the wall on which the body of Saul and his sons were impaled, right there at bait shan. That's what they did. <clears throat> By the way, it means house of rest. Wasn't on that day for Saul and his children. That's for sure. So that's what they did. They fastened his uh, body over there so that they could again um, propagate their gospel, and that is that uh, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is weak. Our God is greater. Now, this is amazing. Verse eleven: When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead the place is called Jabesh. It's in an area called Gilead. Gilead, let's say I'm standing in Israel right now. Let's say I'm standing in Israel. If I turn this way, I'm looking east. There's the Jordan River running north-south. I'm looking east. If I keep looking east, I'm looking into Syria in the north. Dip down a little bit. I'm looking into Jordan. 
The hills of Gilead, as I look across, are part of, of Syria, part of Jordan, or, or known as the Golan Heights. That's Gilead. Jabesh Gilead was across the Jordan, about 12 to 15 miles away from Beit Shan. The people there were called Jabethites. Okay. So it says the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard somehow what the Philistines had done to Saul. All the valiant men rose and walked all through the night, and they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beit Shan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Now, this, what in the, look, there's a lot of stuff. First, do you know burning bodies, uh, dead bodies, is not like a Jewish thing? You hardly ever see it in the Bible. Cremation, to dispose of the body, is just not, it's just not a Jewish practice, generally. Uh, in fact, if you read in the Bible, you're, you're really not going to see uh, cremation presented in a positive light. Now, please hear me. The Bible does not say cremation is a sin or prohibited. Therefore, if you ha have had a loved one cremated or you plan to be disposed of yourself through cremation, in my opinion, you're not sinning at all. Please, please, don't, don't, uh, don't hear me say that. But I can tell you, I think the preferred mode of disposition of the body is traditional burial. Now, that's a whole thing we can talk about on another day. I did a message on it one time called cremation. You can get it in the bookstore on our website or uh, shoot me an email. I'll send you my notes on it. I'm not the final word on it, but I wanted to figure out myself, what does the Bible have to say about cremation? Anyway, uh, in the Bible, the Israelites almost never cremated. And yet here... It says that the, the guys from Jabesh, they're Jews, burned, took down Saul's body and his sons, brought it back to Jabesh, and they burned them there. So what's up? Well, uh, please know it's an exception to the rule. And why did they do it in this case? Can I just offer a couple speculative thoughts? I'm guessing. One, uh, the Philistines, if they found the bodies, would have desecrated and mutilated them more. And so the men from Jabesh decided to bring the bodies back, burn them there, just bury the bones. There would be no bodies to desecrate. One thought. Second thought. While the bodies were hanging on the walls of their temples, they became ceremonially undefiled and desecrated. I can show this to you in the book of Leviticus. When something comes to be in contact with what's considered an unclean thing, that person or thing becomes unclean and it has to be burned. So maybe they saw the bodies of Saul and his sons to be defiled, and therefore they burned them for that reason. Here's a third reason. I guarantee the Philistines mutilated the, the bodies pretty grotesquely. They decapitated Saul and sent his head around. And First Chronicles 10 tells us they hung his head uh, at the temple of Dagon. So they undoubtedly mutilated the bodies and so... The Jabethites, out of respect for it all, may have burned the bodies so as to deal with the mutilated flesh. Isn't this a good discussion prior to lunch? Hey, folks, I'm still getting the pizza. <clears throat> so, okay, that's just a side, kind of a side note. But here's the thing that 
really gets my attention. Verse 13, they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at, at uh, Jabesh. And they fasted for seven days. So here's the deal. You know what they had to do? They had to come undercover by night. They had to cross the Jordan River. They had to go deep into enemy territory. Somehow, they had to remove Saul at great risk, the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall on which they were impaled at Beit Shan. Then they had to reverse their tracks, take the bodies, carry them eastward again, cross the Jordan River there and only there to burn them, then bury the bones under a tree, tamarisk tree, and then they fasted or yeah for, for seven days. My question is, by the way, that seven-day period is called Shiva, uh, and we do it today even. It's called sitting Shiva. Shiva is the Hebrew word for seven. It's kind of a biblical way of grieving. When you lose a loved one, a week is set aside, during which time the grieving um, survivors are given permission to grieve. So they stay home. They do not prepare meals. Friends and family bring meals, food in. Um, You are absolved of any responsibilities. You don't go to work at that point at home. We, we cover mirrors with cloth because you, you don't have to feel obligated to look good. I mean it. During the grieving period. You don't, ladies don't have to put on makeup or things like that. Uh, ladies might wear dark clothing. Sometimes they'll cut their garment. They'll rent their clothing. At other times, if you don't want to cut your actual garment, the funeral home, the Jewish funeral home, this actually happens, will give you a kind of a ribbon. You cut it a little bit, and you just tack it on your shoulder. That's what you do. You'll sit on hard benches because you're grieving. People will come in and out. You're not expected to be at the top of your game. You can weep openly. And you can laugh. It goes on for seven days, just as it did in biblical times, sitting Shiva. I often think we Jews mess up so many things, but we got grieving down pat. You, you people can learn from us about how to grieve. We don't bottle it up. We just let it out. We go through the grieving. We don't think it's shameful to miss a loved one. We don't preach at one another. You dry your tears. No, we don't do that. You can cry as long as you want. So anyway, that's what they did. But here's my question. Why? Why did they do this? Why did they risk their lives? To Saul is a very flawed individual. He comes to an, an end none of us want to come to. Why did the men from Jabesh risk their lives to do this? What do you think, Bear? Every once in a while, I'm glad Barry's in this class. Not all the time. But Barry is right. So listen, let me expand upon this. And Barry's absolutely right. Saul, who didn't finish well, did get off to kind of a good start. Way back in 1 Samuel chapter 11, there's a group called the Ammonites. Those are descendants of Lot. The Ammonites attack the people of Jabesh. The people of Jabesh cannot resist them. They're outnumbered. The Ammonite leader was a guy named Nahash. The Jabethites try to come to some agreement, some deal with Nahash to save their lives. He says to them, you can see this in 1 Samuel 11. I'm not making it up. It's mostly true. Um, He says to them, here's the deal. 
I will let you live if you surrender and let me cut out your right eye. Everyone, cut out your right eye. Please let me uh, demonstrate to you why this is not a good deal. And uh, um, can you take your hand, imagine it to be a shield. Just hold it up in front of your left eye. It's your left hand in front of your left eye because most soldiers would carry their shields in their left hand, their sword in their right. Okay, so shield is there. Now close your right eye. What are you seeing? Little or nothing. That's the point. This would render you unable to resist militarily ever again. So Nahash's terms are not good. Well, word of this somehow gets back to Saul, newly appointed king. He gets really angry. He takes some animals, some livestock. He has them cut up in pieces and sent out throughout Israel to each of the tribes. He says to them, this will happen to you. Not that they will be cut up in pieces, but their livestock will be cut up in pieces. He says, if you don't come to the assistance of your brothers on the other side of the Jordan River in Jabesh to help them. Well, that was a very effective recruiting strategy because 330,000 Israelites showed up to help out. And they defeated Nahash and the Ammonites. Now, that was years prior to this incident. But the men of Jabesh remember. Here's my point, folks. Love does not forget the king who has died. King Jesus died for you and I. King Saul was imperfect. And yet those whom he rescued still remembered him. Our king is perfect. How could we forget him? Love does not forget the king who has died. Something else that is helpful to me at a point of potential bad decision-making is don't forget King Jesus. At the point of temptation or this or that, don't forget King Jesus. Love does not forget the king who has died. Now, what the men from Jabesh did is that they took down Saul, the king's humiliated body. They delivered him from the wall of humiliation to give him a fit burial. You know what our job is? It's to to deliver King Jesus from disrespect, from humiliation, from what's from false conclusions. And here's the worst thing uh, that we must deliver King Jesus from, apathy and simply being ignored, not taken seriously by the people in our day. Our job, because we cannot forget the king who has died, is to deliver King Jesus from apathy and neglect and indifference. We must make King Jesus an issue. We must bring him up in conversation. We must, if we have a heart for him, open our mouths for him. Look for opportunities. Hand out a tract. Invite someone to church. Whatever it is, 
There's no methodology anyone has to subscribe to. Just know this is your purpose for continuing on here and mine. It's to deliver King Jesus from uh, misunderstanding. I think Jesus was a good man. No, you must deliver him. No, he cannot be a, merely a good man if he claimed to be so much more. That would make him a bad man if his claims far exceeded the reality. You must deliver him from that misconception. I think Jesus was a myth, a fabrication in the minds of man to give them a basis for feeling hopeful and secure about life after death. You must deliver the historic Jesus from the notion that he's a myth no different than the ones we read about in Greek mythology. That's your job. People say, well, if you take Jesus and he makes you happy, I'm happy for you. No, you must deliver King Jesus from that utilitarian purpose. Good night. Cocaine makes you happy. That's not why you accept King Jesus. You accept him because he's Lord. You must deliver him from that misconception. You take Jesus, someone else takes Muhammad and all the rest. You must deliver him from being uh, submerged in a group of alleged equals. You must help people to see him to be categorically different. How's he different? I like to point people to the resurrection. To me, that distinguishes him, many other things. But this clearly distinguishes him from all other pretenders to the throne. This is your job and mine. And for people simply going about their business, we must deliver King Jesus from a wall of neglect and indifference. I remember one time I was in a car years ago. I was with the guy who led me to the Lord. He was driving. We, he, we were in the military and we were going who knows where. And I was wanting to learn from him. And he, we picked up a hitchhiker. I got in the back seat, let the hitchhiker sit in the passenger seat, my friend was driving, and my friend made such just friendly conversation. What's your name? My name is Mark. This is Stuart. Where are you going? Going so okay, good. We'll be able to take you most of the way. And where are you from? It was just normal conversation. The guy was talking it up, going back and forth, and, and uh, was a college student. And uh, the guy who led me to the Lord said to him, "So, uh, what are your plans after college? Well, I want to go to vet school or." I don't know if he said that. I'm kind of making that up because I don't remember the details. But it was something like that. I'm going to go to something. And so, so my friend said, really good plans. You've given a lot of thought to your vocation and all the rest, it seems. And then he said, have you ever thought about spiritual things? Just like that. I thought, wow, that is so good. It was just such a smooth flow. Have you ever thought about spiritual things? The guy said, what do you mean? And the guy who led me to the Lord said, well, you know, about God, about life. And the conversation ensued. That's all. I mean, the guy has no choice. He's kind of a captive audience. He's in the, the car, you know what I mean? But I really thought to myself, ah, my friend delivered King Jesus from neglect. I mean, this young guy's doing good stuff. He's thinking about college and majors and vocation thereafter and marriage and all. I mean, all of these good things, totally indifferent, neglecting the giver of life. My son made an issue of my son. My friend made an issue of King Jesus. I learned from that. It was 1973. I can't do the math like a million years ago. I use the same technique. You just ask people, 
questions and they say, wow, you've given it a lot of thought. Have you ever thought about spiritual things? You leave it deliberately general because they're going to say, what do you mean spiritual? You fill in the blank. You can say, well, I mean like stuff in the Bible. You say whatever you want to say. You can say, well, I mean like, you can say like Jesus. You can say like life after death. You, wherever you want to go. But anyway, here's the point, folks. That's what we're here for, to deliver King Jesus from a wall of neglect, humiliation, misunderstanding, and all the rest. Because love must never forget the king who has died. Yes, ma'am. That is a good observation. And thought about it. Terrible. That's a very good observation that you made. Well, listen, God bless you folks. Look at this. We're, we're finishing right on time, which is amazing to me. Uh, so, Lord willing, next week we'll be in Galatians. What do we do this week? Don't forget the king who has died. Lord Jesus, perish the thought that we would, in practice, do so. In our hearts, we remember you, but somehow we, as we live, life just distracts us from things that matter. Help us to be focused on you. Help us to remember, as did these men from Jabeth, uh, their king who rescued them. Help us to remember you who have so graciously at such cost. Uh, help us to remember that you have rescued us and are alive from the dead and live in us and want through us to come to live in others. Help us to make you an issue today, tomorrow, as we go about our way. May it never be that we would in practice forget you, the king who has died. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. See you in Galatians next week, Lord willing.